morning out of love and reverence for God's Word, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. And out of love and reverence for God's Word, please, as, as you turn to those pages, please stand with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you, and it's on page 885. If you've been with us over what's been now almost a year and a half, you remember that back in November of 2017, we started our study in the book of Luke, and next week is our last passage in the book of Luke. Uh, Today we will be looking at a a passage that is familiar to many of us, one of our dear passages, uh, a story of Jesus appearing to disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. It's one that's familiar to us, one that we love, and so let us now give attention to it and hear now as God speaks to us. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread And blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so ends the reading of God's word. And friends, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who does indeed speak to us through your word. And we are thankful for these passages that are dear to us, that we know well. And yet, Father, we recognize that sometimes we 
uh, fail to see all that you would have us see, fail to gaze and to look around and see the beauty uh, that is there right before our eyes because we seem to know this so well. And so we do ask that you would open our eyes this morning, that you would give us ears to hear all that you would have us hear, that you would loosen my lips to speak of your glories and the beauty of Christ. And we pray that you would do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must go to Galilee to be rejected, suffered, died, and on the third day be raised to new life. These words that we heard last week from the mouth of the angel form the backbone of our faith the backbone of the gospel of grace. It is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died, was raised to new life. Is that a source of joy for you? Is that enough for you? Uh, Because as we look at this passage today, in light of the good news of the gospel, in the light of Jesus being raised from the dead, we see these two men who are confused, who are sad. They seem to to be doubting uh, the reality of the resurrection on one hand. And on the other hand, it doesn't seem to really matter. It's as if it's too little, too late. It's like they had a perception of what it meant, what they were looking for from a Savior. And now that he was crucified, he could never, ever deliver on those hopes. Indeed, the the crucifixion is a source of confusion uh, for these guys and often for us. Uh, This very Easter, I read uh, two opinion pieces uh, that... Uh, were, were available talking about the nature of the crucifixion and the sum total of both of them was basically we've, got, we've, we've had it all wrong. The traditional reformed position of Christ needing to go to the cross to endure the outpoured wrath of God is just not the case. God is a God of love. He loves us and he accepts us for who we are. And friends, it is indeed true that our God is a God of love. He is love itself. It is true that he has shown us grace, not because of anything in us. But the fact that the the crucifixion was not necessary is patently false. We'll see that in our passage today. In fact, what, what these two men, these two disciples end up realizing is that a crucified Jesus provides the only hope that is worth hoping for because only a crucified Jesus could really be our Savior. And so as we begin our study, let let me ask you to consider this fact. When you think of Jesus as your Savior, what is it that you are really hoping that he will save you from? What does it mean for him to be your Savior? What is the, the biggest need or the biggest pain that you are hoping from him that he will deliver you out of. And I would argue that probably your ask is not too big 
but it's far, far too small. And so let us let Jesus speak into our hearts to show us what kind of Savior he really is, what he has really redeemed us from, so that we can have true hope that only he gives. So our passage today is on that same Resurrection Sunday that we started last week. And if you let your eyes go up just a few verses right before our passage, you'll be reminded of where we were uh, on Resurrection Sunday. The women go to the tomb. Jesus' body isn't there, but the angels are there. And the angels say, he's not here. He has risen just like he said he would. Um, And they come back and they tell the disciples, and the disciples don't believe them. It says that they considered their words as an idle tale. And yet Peter rushes to the tomb. He sees it just as the women say, but no Jesus. And then it says that he went home marveling at what had happened. And our passage picks up there, and it says, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. These were two disciples, but not of the 12 disciples, or now 11 disciples, now that Judas uh, left. And they're going to a village named Emmaus, uh, to the west of Jerusalem, about seven miles away. So seven miles, imagine walking down Silverado to Custer, turning left and walking to Legacy in Plano. It's not too far if you go by car, but by foot, it would take us about two, two and a half hours. And as they're going, they're walking, they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And it's obvious from Luke's language that this was, a, this was an engaged conversation. They were, they were talking, they are discussing, they are debating, they are trying to figure these things out. They've, they, they're processing everything. There's the crucifixion, there's the the women's tale of the angels, there's the empty tomb. They're, they're asking the question, what does all this mean? And in the midst of that, while they're talking, it says, uh, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And, and he comes up and he engages them in their conversation. He says, what is this conversation that you're talking about? What are you guys talking about? And Luke doesn't tell us exactly their words, what, what exactly, how they were wrestling through it, but we do know the mood. So while they were engaged in this conversation, they were sad. It says, uh, they stood still looking sad. They were defeated. They were distraught. They were disappointed. This wasn't a happy discussion there was a somber mood. They were trying to figure out what had happened. And Cleopas, the only of the two disciples that we know anything about, just his name, he answers this incredulous response to Jesus. Are you, not, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? If there was any question on the public nature of the crucifixion, look at it from Cleopas's shocked response. Cleopas seems to suggest that you couldn't possibly be a resident of Jerusalem and not know what had happened. And so if this stranger that they don't recognize doesn't know, well, he must be a visitor. And it's so public that he's probably the only guy in town that doesn't even know what's going on. But then see how Jesus responds. He simply says, what things? 
see a master stroke of the master teacher as he masterfully tries to draw out of these two men their perspective on what has happened and the source of their sadness. And Cleopas obliges, he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Notice how Cleopas describes Jesus. He, he talks about who Jesus is, but then he talks about the reaction to Jesus. He says that Jesus is a, this Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man from Nazareth, but he is a, a prophet, a prophet who is mighty in deed and mighty in word. His, he is a true prophet, not a false prophet. His deeds confirmed his words so that they knew that he spoke the truth. And he is a prophet who is mighty in deed and word before God and before all the people. All heaven and all earth can testify to the fact that this man, this Jesus, was mighty in deed and in word that he spoke for God. And yet Cleopas acknowledges that the reactions were mixed. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They, our chief priests and our rulers, they, they rejected him. They, they con- condemned him to death. They crucified him. They killed him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And therein lies the source of their sadness. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But hidden behind their sadness, don't you hear it? Obviously we were wrong. Obviously we were wrong. If he was the one to redeem Israel, our chief priests, they would have accepted him. If he was the one to redeem Israel, he would have been able to overthrow our rulers And certainly he wouldn't have been crucified. Because how in the world can a crucified Jesus redeem us? A dead man can't redeem anybody. But to add to it, there's the confusion of the events of the morning. He says, Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying, They'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. It, it doesn't make sense. He's, he's, he's raised from the dead. And we're, we're, he's just not in the tomb. It, uh, these things aren't adding up. And so they're, they're confused and they're sad. But, but don't you think that if, if the one that they were expecting to redeem Israel his, his body wasn't in the tomb. And these women came back saying that the angels had said he's alive. Don't you think that would have been a source of excitement? This is the man that we had hoped would redeem us. He's alive. He's raised from the dead. But they're not. They're sad. They're dejected. They're confused. And more to the point, they don't stay to investigate. They're skipping town. They're on their way to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. 
And it's even more confusing if you remember the fact that everything that had happened was in accordance with, Je with what Jesus had already told them. If you remember back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. But then he said, and the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in Luke 18, he told his disciples, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And then they went to Jerusalem, he was rejected, he was flogged, he was crucified, and then resurrection morning, he's not in the tomb and they go to the tomb, and, and the angels say, He's not here, but He's risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Three times they heard the message, and yet they're still confused. They still don't get it. But friends, how often do we really fail to hear even when we're trying to listen? It happens all the time with our spouses. It happens all the time with our parents and our kids and our coworkers, where we expect one thing and we hear out of their mouths what we're expecting rather than what they're really saying. And how do we end up resolving that? With a patient, calm, gentle, you're not listening to me. You're not listening. And how does Jesus respond here? He turns to them and he says in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. He chides them for not listening, for, for not hearing all that the prophets have spoken, all the things that have been told them. He says, you're not listening. And he goes through, it says, Moses and all the prophets, declaring the things concerning himself. Um, do you know what to do with the Old Testament? Do you know, have, you, have you wrestled through uh, how to handle the Old Testament? When the Lord started to put a delight and desire into my heart for his word, this was a real perplexing question for me. I had grown up in hearing all the good Sunday school lessons, creation, uh, you know, the flood, um, David and Goliath, you know, Samson, all those good stories. And as I started to read through God's word, I really started to question, what in the world do we do with the Old Testament? Because the Gospels... Um, testified about Jesus and that made sense to me and everything else in the New Testament talked about Jesus and how we ought to live in light of his resurrection but as I looked at the Old Testament I said what in the world does that have anything to do with us until the Lord led me through the book of Luke and when I came to this particular passage and it said and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
my jaw dropped, and I nearly dropped my Bible. Because right there in black and white was the answer. All of Scripture, all of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. And I said, really? Where? And friends, I wish that we could take hours, two hours, longer than that, to delve deeply into the reality of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Because when you stop and you gaze on the pictures of, in the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is everywhere. He is there. From the very beginning, He is the Creator. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the true ark who saves His people from the flood. He is the child of Abraham through whom all of the promises come to God's people. He is the true Moses who leads us out of slavery. And He is the true Joshua who leads us into the promised land. He is the true lawgiver. He is the perfect law keeper. He is the great prophet that was foretold through Moses. He is the great priest that was foretold to Eli. He is the great king who was told to David. He, the Psalms not only prophesied to him, but they, he was the great Israelite. So they were his Psalms. They were his hope. He is the wisdom of God. He is the great lover of God's people. And, he, and the prophets prophesied about his day. Those boys had two hours of a master class with Jesus to drink deeply of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. But friends, I think that we're going to have that joy for all eternity. And we have that joy beginning even now. We will never exhaust the depths of the beauty of seeing Christ in all of the story of God's Word. And yet I don't think that's what they talked about. I think the conversation they had on that road to Emmaus was a bit more pointed. Because look down at verse 26. Remember, they are sad and disappointed. And Jesus says in verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted those things to them. And so perhaps he reminded them that the, son, that the seed of the woman, the serpent, would strike his heel before he crushed his head. Perhaps he pointed them to the ram who was the sacrifice in lieu of Isaac that was provided to Abraham. Perhaps he pointed them to the Passover lamb which covered them from the destroyer. Perhaps he pointed them to the sacrificial system which was required but never seemed to completely do the job to bring that forgiveness and wholeness that they needed. Or he pointed to the blood of the covenants which sealed those covenant promises. Or the blood which purified God's dwelling place, the tabernacle. Or the twin covenantal promises that seemed to be at odds with each other where God promised with outstretched arm, I will give these promises to Abraham and to his children. And yet, through Moses he said, the righteous will do these things. You will live by the law. And if you do not live by the law, then you will receive the curse of the law. How could those things be resolved? Perhaps he pointed to Jesus being, the Messiah being 
the true scapegoat on whom the sins of the people were was sent into the wilderness, or the true Korah that swallowed up the ground, who, who was swallowed up by death for the sake of the people, or the true Samson who by his death saved more than by his life, or the true King Saul whose body hung outside the city, but not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Or perhaps he pointed to Psalm 22, which talked about how the Messiah would be forsaken by God. Or Psalm 89, which we sang today, which said, You have cast off and rejected me. You were full of wrath against your anointed. Or perhaps he pointed to Zechariah, which said, They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced. Or definitely to Psalm 53. That said, all of us are like sheep gone astray, each going his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was necessary that the Christ suffer and die. And friends, these disciples didn't get it because they had all the facts and yet they couldn't connect the dots. They knew that Jesus was the Christ. They had hoped that He would redeem Israel, but they had seen Him die. And in their mind, a dead Jesus could never be the Christ. And because what they wanted, like what we want, is they wanted redemption here and now. They had brain block on what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. They wanted deliverance from their earthly oppressors. They wanted the glory of Israel to be restored. They wanted a a Savior who would heal all their diseases, who would bring sight to the blind, who would free the prisoners from prison. And that's really not much different from what we really hope for, is it? We, we rejoice when the church gains prominence in the public sphere, when um, God-honoring leaders make God-honoring laws, when there is, we, we hope and we pray for a time where we can live as Christians with peace and safety and comfort where we don't have to worry about being oppressed or ridiculed by our neighbors. We pray for the healing of our diseases. But the problem, friends, is that we are, we are constantly looking for salvation from something out there. Something that is a problem to us without recognizing that the true deliverance and the true salvation that we need is for something that is in us. That we are the enemies. In our sin, we became enemies to God Himself. And it was necessary for our Savior to suffer for those sins. Our hearts are constantly giving ourselves a pass. Thinking of the goodness 
of ourselves and expecting God to deliver to us. It was, it was back even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, God said to the Israelites, He said, don't think that you are getting these things because you are righteous, because you are stubborn. He says, remember and do not forget how you made me burn with wrath in the wilderness. Friends, when there, as finite, sinful human beings, there, there are two things that we are terrified to stop and think and look at. The first is eternity. Each of my kids has sat on my couch and had a bit of a moment thinking about the reality of eternity. We, are, we, have, we know everything in the context of a beginning and an end. And the thought of never-ending, of eternity, is terrifying. It's a bottomless pit, and we don't, we don't even want to think about it. The other is the depths of our sin before a absolutely holy, absolutely powerful, just God. And Scripture is clear that that is exactly what we are. God is, God is holy and perfect in all of His being. He is so holy that the angels must cover their eyes and their feet. He, the purity of His holiness is so bright that no creature dare look at Him. And He will not acquit the guilty, He says. He hates sin. It, it is an attack against His absolute sovereignty. And it's not just the big sins. It is every sin, every sin which we delight in, which we harbor in our hearts, which we make excuses for. It's every lying thought, every lustful glance, every selfish inclination, every hateful utterance, every time we don't submit to our parents or we fail to discipline our children or our lack of gentleness, every divisive comment, Every time a wife doesn't submit to her husband or her husband is harsh with her or we fail to submit to authority, any sin, which we say is small, which we excuse, every sin is high treason of the absolute sovereign of and worthy of death. And it's not that. It's not just that. But when we couple that death with the reality of eternity, that is where the stakes become immense. Because it's not simply death, but it is a death of eternal torment. It is a death of being burned alive with nothing to quench the fire. It is a death of worms consuming us without any mercy that there will be an end to the agony. It is being imprisoned in a prison with no hope of escape. It is knowing who God is and bowing the knee under the heel of the King of Kings, but never knowing a moment of His grace and none can rescue us from His hand and living for all eternity with guilt and shame and regret forever and ever. It is being forsaken to God's terrors with none to save, 
where God himself is glorified in unleashing his perfect justice upon us. Scripture says that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. And friends, that is what Jesus saves us from. It is the utter, total, perfect justice of God poured out on us with full force from all eternity. We get downtrodden. We get disappointed when things don't go our way. We get upset when we have to suffer, when we face persecution. And these things, friends, are real concerns, but our concerns are way too small. Our biggest need is not for gainful employment or protection from our enemies or healing of all our diseases, but is paying the infinite debt owed to a holy and just God. And in Jesus Christ, that debt was paid for you and for me. Puritan John Owen put it like this, to see it on the cross. He said, to see him who is the wisdom of God and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, to see him, I say, fear and tremble and how and, and bow and sweat and pray and die. To see him lifted up on the cross and earth trembling under him as if unable to bear his weight and the heavens darkened over him as if shut out against his cry and himself hanging between both as if refused by both. And all this because our sins did meet upon him. This of all things, does most abundantly manifest the severity of God's vindictive justice. Here or nowhere else is it to be learned. For us to be redeemed, friends, from the terrible wrath of God, the glorious wrath of God, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And this He has done for you and for me out of a overwhelming and majestic expression of the love of the Father. How could we ever see this as something that is small? How could we ever look to God and say, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? How could we ever say, yeah, but that's not enough. Make me happy today. How could our hearts not sing for joy? We have been freed from the curse, and set free to be, to be his people forever and ever. And the apostles, or the disciples, gained this perspective as Jesus went through the pages of the Old Testament and showed them that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die. And you might wonder, well, why didn't Jesus just explain this sooner? Why, why were they so confused? And he didn't explain it because it was his purposeful intention to go to the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 says that we impart a a secret and mysterious promise that is made manifest now. And if the rulers of our day had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He held it hidden because it was his intention to go to the cross. Out of love for us, he kept it a secret until it had been accomplished for you and for me. And so they knew these things, 
and they approached the village to where they were going. And Jesus acted like he was going further, but they asked him to stay. And so they went in, and when they were at the table, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, what are we to make of that? Uh, Jesus breaks the bread, and they recognize him, and then he disappears. Well, certainly, we see a connection to the Lord's Supper, although it would be going too far to say that this is another instance of the Lord's Supper. But in our sacraments, there is an element where God personalizes the message that he gives to us. In baptism, water is applied to an individual. In the Lord's Supper, we individually take the elements and eat and drink. If there's any question during the preached word, whether that is coming to us, there is no question that Christ is ministering to us in the sacraments. And the same was here. Jesus had walked them through the story of the Bible, and their hearts burned, and yet it wasn't until he broke the bread that their minds went back to the Lord's Supper, where he said, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And all of a sudden, they were able to connect the dots, that it was, he, Jesus was the Christ, he had come to redeem Israel. He intended to be crushed, and he had done it for them. And at that moment, they recognized him for who he was, and he vanished for their sight. And so, with their eyes enlightened and it applied to their hearts, their hearts were ignited with a holy fire as if a light was, a lamp was lit in a darkened room and they were full of joy to see their Savior. They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel and now they knew that he had and it was only because he had humbled himself and had suffered for them. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem and they find the eleven and the eleven have a message for them. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And these two responded with their own good news. Yes, the Lord is risen indeed and He was known to us in the breaking of the bread. And their hearts burned, they said, as they understood these things for themselves. And friends, if you desire to have your heart aflame with the good news of the Gospel, let me just point out how they came upon this. They were engaging in the material, uh, their circumstances, with all of their being. It was mind and body and spirit. They discussed, they debated, they wondered. And yet, apart from Christ, apart from an interpretation of understanding Christ for who He really is, they were confused. They were disappointed. Perhaps they had a hunger and thirst for Christ, but they had no satisfaction. But when Christ entered in and he gave them a Christ-centered interpretation of their life and all of redemptive history, their confusion turned to clarity. 
Their hope was restored and their sadness was turned to joy. It wasn't no, no frills, no watered down message, no cutting corners, just the old, old story of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. But friends, that's the same story that it is for them, that it is for you. And don't ever let that story become old news to you. It is your life. It is your only hope. It is your salvation. It is the only true good news. Let your heart burn with the reality that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And he decided to do so intentionally for you to save you from the wrath and curse of God. He did this for your sins because of his marvelous love for you. He was crucified, but he has risen. And he is risen forevermore, just as he said. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, indeed, you do love us that you would send your son to bear the weight of our sins, to be crushed, to bear the, the, the wrath that we deserved. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us eyes to see that it was necessary for this to be the case. And having been set free by his sacrifice, his once sacrifice, I pray, Father, that you would help us to live lives of joy, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we have life eternal, abundant, and free in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust this, this reality as our very own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.